Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. Today, you're tuning in for our series, Resilient, designed to help you reclaim your joy, strengthen your heart, and thrive in turbulent times. It's our hope this message will help you discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. Have you, have you ever had one of those moments where you weren't sure if you had what it took? Like, like one of those moments where you just had to throw up a desperation prayer. I'll tell you what I mean. I just started ministry as a pastor about 10 years ago. It was my first day on the job, and, and I got asked to visit a woman named Dolores in the hospital. And I didn't know it at the time, but this woman would, would go on to, to teach me one of the greatest lessons in resilience that I've ever experienced in my life. I drove up to the hospital, and I have to tell you, I was so nervous. If you asked me like, to write a paper on theology or jump up on a stage and preach a message, I was totally prepared. But visiting someone in a hospital crisis was so far outside of my comfort zone. I found Dolores' room and began to walk in. But the message didn't quite translate from my head to, to my feet. I was frozen in space. I leaned against the wall outside of her hospital room, and I threw up one of those desperation prayers. It was simple. I said, God, I don't know what I'm doing here, and I definitely don't know what to say, so help, please, thank you, amen. (laughs) And I finally convinced my feet to do their job and carry me into the room, and as soon as I turned the corner, our eyes met. She was laying in bed, and she had wires across her chest and across her arms and her entire body, and in the background, I could hear the the monitor slowly and steadily beeping with each breath that she took. And I think Dolores could sense my apprehension, either that or she just wanted to make fun of me because the first words she ever said to me were, what's wrong with your face? (laughs) And so immediately I started to like check myself, like what is wrong with my face? Does she know that I'm nervous? Can she see right through me? And then I realized, oh, I've got my sunglasses on my head. I pulled them off. He said, oh, it's just my sunglasses. Sorry about that. And she said, why do you have them on your face? I said, you know, my wife says the same thing, that I shouldn't wear them like that. You should listen to her. I think you're right, Dolores. I get it. Okay. So I sat down because the ice had been broken. And from there, we began to enjoy just a conversation together. We both knew that she was going home tomorrow. So I asked her, what are you most excited about for going home? And her eyes got big and she said, to eat the hospital food has been awful. And I'm like, all right, Dolores, I see you. You're my kind of woman. I love to eat. And so I asked her, what are you going to have when you get out? I'm thinking she's going to say like steak, lobster, mac and cheese, side of mashed potatoes. I got maybe a little bit carried away. And she leaned forward like she said, she's going to share a secret with me. And she said, Subway. (laughs) I said, Dolores, Subway, you can do better than that. I needed her to be a bit more reasonable in this moment, so I pushed back. I said, surely you didn't say Subway, did you? She said, yep, tuna fish sandwich. Dolores, come on, you are definitely better than that. (laughs) And we argued a little bit more about tuna fish sandwiches and Subway, but as we did so, we both just, we both knew the same grim reality. We both knew that tomorrow she was going home, but she wasn't going home because she'd gotten better and was healthy. No, the doctors had told her there was nothing more that they could do. Cancer had won the battle, and so she was going home. Do you feel that? It's like this this visceral gut punch as soon as I say the words. 
And all of us sitting here, we, we immediately go to the loved one that was lost, the sick friend who right now is fighting to get healthy. We feel the weight of the relationship and the marriage that ended. It's that same sinking feeling when you turn on the news or even scroll through social media. Maybe you're like me and every day feels like a gut punch, reminding me that, that I don't have enough. Maybe you wake up feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders, the stress, the worry, the anxiousness. It's all around us, and my plate just feels like I'm just adding more and more and more to it. And then on top of all of this, there's this recognition that tomorrow might just bring that one thing that I don't have enough resilience for. And I don't know about you, but it just it feels like the days are getting heavier and heavier, not lighter and lighter. And you're sitting there like, oof, that was a lot. I agree, that was a lot. Sorry, I'm a bit of a bummer this morning. But I'm actually sharing those things because I, I'm starting to realize in my own life that maybe we weren't created to live this way. In fact, if you flip to the very beginning of the scriptures, you can see that we were created for the exact opposite sort of life. All the way back in Genesis 1, there's this moment when God speaks. And here's what God says. He says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. And if you flip the page, one page over to Genesis 2, one chapter later, watch, watch the setup that Jesus gives his newly created humanity. He says that now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. That's Adam. And the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so if you're following along, God created created it, all of us, humanity, in his own image. And then he places us in what writers of Genesis describe as paradise. All the food we'd ever need provided, all the beauty we could, could ever possibly look at provided. At the center of the garden is a tree of life. And I don't know what that means, but I just, I'm just assuming that it's probably like a really good tree filled with fruit and life and good stuff. And the whole point of this Eden is so that God could walk hand in hand with his people so that he could be our sustainer. He could be the source of life with us. That is what we were created for. And I don't know about you, but it sounds a whole lot better than the world around us, doesn't it? But sometimes expectations and reality aren't always the same thing. I learned this lesson um, when Casey and I first gotten married, actually. We, we moved into our first home together. We had the googly love eyes for each other, fully, madly in love. And, and I don't know about your marriages, but for us, especially at the very beginning, romantic gestures were everything. So I was outside one day walking the dog in the backyard, and I, I heard Casey pull up in the driveway, shuffle around in the house a bit, and then she came to the back bedroom, which overlooked the backyard. And, and I walked up to that window that she was standing at, and I locked eyes with her. And I noticed how beautiful she was. I noticed how her bright, her blue eyes were, and they were wide open just looking back at me. She flipped her hair, flirting with me, with me. And I thought to myself, how did I get so lucky to be married to her? And then, in the most romantic of gestures, I lifted my hand up ever so slightly and set it gently on the glass in front of her so that she, too, could reach up her hand and they could meet together. This is romance, boys. And everyone out there right now says... Oh, I know, so romantic, so sweet. And so I set my hand there and I wait for her to match the image of my hand, except she didn't do this at all. Instead, her sweet, innocent, beautiful face turned fully white in sheer terror as she ran away the exact opposite direction. 
And I'm stuck there like a dummy with my hand against the glass wondering what in the world just happened. This was supposed to be such a sweet moment and Casey ruined it. Any single guys out there without any game? (laughs) High five, you're not alone. But as is the case with most stories, there's a second way to tell this story. It starts with Casey showing up at home about 10 o'clock at night. Her front door is wide open. Her dog is missing. Her husband is missing. Also, she walks inside of the house and she's nervous. She's worried someone else is there with her. So she goes to the furthest room in the house and looks at the window, not to see what's outside, not to make googly eyes at her husband, me, but rather she's looking at the window to see so that no one sneaks up behind her. So she's looking at her own reflection to see who's stalking her in the house. And when she flips her hair, she's not flirting with me. No, she's nervous trying to calm herself by stroking her hair. And as she looks deeply at that reflection, not her husband, who again, so romantically is putting together a grand gesture of love. Out of nowhere, she sees a on the window and randomly takes off going away, screaming, leaving me once again, (laughs) standing outside with my hand on the window, contemplating my life choices. And I tell that story because I think it so accurately reflects God and ourselves in the creation story. God created us in his image. A mirror image he created us is what Genesis 1 says. He held us hand in hand and he said, do life with me. I will sustain you. I will be everything that you need. And he holds up his hand to humanity and just says, take my hand and we will do this together. But humanity instead chooses something different. The writers of Genesis tell us that Adam and Eve were more interested in being God than living with God. And so instead of listening and following hand in hand, humanity chose to reject God and run the opposite way. And it was in that moment that so much pain and brokenness flooded into the world. From that point, Adam and Eve made the decision that they would fend for themselves. They would sustain themselves, that they could do without God And when I look around at our world today, it still feels like we're making the same decision over and over again. In fact, everything that we've been talking about in this resilient series has been about us as humans doing everything we can to return back to a place of relying on God for our every need. The world around us is telling us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but God is saying, I'm going to give you the strength that you need. As we walk through life, it's filled with cares and burdens. And God is saying, those are too heavy for you to bear. Cast them on me. I want to carry them for you. Another way of saying it is that what we've been learning is that resilience is reliance. I'll say one more time that resilience is reliance. Because that is what we were created to do, to rely on God for our every need. But before you go too far and and start thinking that maybe I'm a terrible husband, terrorizing my wife at night, I'm happy to report that she recovered. And more importantly, that she forgave me. We're still married today. And in fact, as I stood there with my hand in the window, contemplating how I was going to get out of this mess, it dawned on me that I should probably chase after her. So I ran inside, calling out her name, Casey, Casey, where are you looking for her? I checked every room, and I finally found her locked in a closet in the furthest corner of the house, rolled up in a ball, shaking with fear and tears. And I learned a couple of things that day. One, in terms of fight or fight, my wife is definitely more of the flight sort of person. And two, I found out that I'm officially the worst husband in the world. So I see her in this closet, and I don't say a word. I'm smarter than that. I mean, take note. And then I just sat down with her. And I wrapped her body in mine. 
and I held her tight. And for a few minutes, I sat there holding her, letting her know it was all going to be okay. Listening, listening, listening. This is exactly what our God does. In response to our rejection of him in the garden, this is what our God does. He has every right to leave us to our own devices. He has every right to leave us to our own choices. We told the God of the universe that we were better off with him, but the entirety, the rest of the story of God in scripture is of God moving heaven and earth to restore us back to what was lost, of us walking hand in hand with him as him being the source of our life. It just, just think through the stories that you heard in Sunday school as a kid. God has started to intervene in the world right away, right off the bat, from the very beginning in some of the most possible, like random and impossible ways. Numbers 22 speaks of one of his servants being spoken to using a donkey. God speaks through a donkey. At another point in Genesis 32, God shows up in a wrestling match with this man named Jacob, one of the great fathers in our faith. It's a super weird story, but Jacob literally has God in a headlock. I don't know how that works. But God is not being able to be let go until Jacob receives a blessing. In Exodus 3, God meets an orphan boy named Moses by speaking to him through a burning bush. And there's all of these real stories all the way throughout scripture. And they're all about God showing up, chasing after his creation. He used angels. He used whispers, wind, famine, floods, anything that he could do to get back our attention and restore us back to him. Yet the story of scripture is that we continue to choose our own path and do our own thing far apart from him, despite him chasing after us. So God moved to phase two and he, he took the orphan named Moses and he used this man to set a people group named the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. And God promised that he would be wherever his people went. So he led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night out of slavery and into Egypt. But remember, it's not enough for God just to lead his people. He wants to live with them just like he did in the garden. So in Exodus, in Exodus 25, he turns to Moses and these are the instructions that he gives Moses. He he tells the people, have them make a sanctuary for me so that I can dwell among them. And this sanctuary was this giant tent that would eventually become known as the tabernacle. And this tabernacle would sit right in the middle of the camp of Israel. It was the first tent that they would erect whenever they would stop to camp. And it was made so that God could dwell amongst his people. So he could be at the center of their hearts and care for them just like he did in the Garden of Eden. And I don't know if you remember this, but while Israel was traveling through the desert with God in the tabernacle, their every need was met. Water sprung up from the ground for them. Bread, manna from heaven came down every morning to sustain them just like God intended in the garden. His people were walking hand in hand while he gave them strength. Uh, as I was researching it this week, I just found this out. But um, if you read Exodus chapter 25 all the way to 31, six whole chapters of the Bible, it's one long list of exactly what God wanted his tabernacle to look like. He gave them dimensions of the space. He gave them a shopping list of the materials, what decorations would go into the space, what the people taking care of the space should wear, say, and do. Six whole chapters. But then check this out. God tells his people that he wants to live with them once again, to return to Eden. He gives them instructions to build him a home. And the people instead start building in Exodus 32, the very next chapter, a golden calf instead. They decide to worship the idol over the God who just freed them from slavery. Are you catching a little bit of a theme here? God chases after humanity. 
And we turn away over and over and over again, running the opposite direction. And again, I don't know that our world is all that different today, is it? Eventually, the, the tabernacle was built and God dwelt with his people, but he had much, much bigger plans in mind. About 3,000 years ago in Chronicles 28, God called on a young and very wise king named Solomon to build him a temple. And the instructions this time, they're so large and so opulent that this temple would stand as, as a beacon to the entire world. Later on, writers of the Old Testament, one of the writers named Isaiah, he would describe the reason why God wanted such a large temple. And here's what Isaiah wrote. He said that these people, the people of the world, I'm going to bring them to my holy place and I'm going to give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer. And I love this for all the nations. So what's happening is that Solomon placed the largest temple possibly imaginable on the largest hill so that all of humanity could see that God had left heaven in pursuit of the nations. He's moving heaven and he's moving earth to return all of us to Eden. But now God's not just at the center of his people, he's at the center of the whole world. You can actually notice to this day, if you go on Google Maps right now today, in the small Middle Eastern country of Israel, that there is a place called Temple Mount. And Temple Mount is at the heart of the city of Jerusalem in the middle of a small strip of land that separates Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's at the very center of the world and the center of our map. And 3,000 years ago, there was a giant temple where God dwelt among the nations. Eden returned. But here's the problem, is that God's presence was contained to the centermost part of the temple in an area called the Holy of Holies. And this area was separated from the rest of the temple by a giant curtain, and only once a year was that veil open for one person to enter and commune with God. The high priest, the, the lead pastor of the people, if you will, was allowed to meet God in this holy place. And so for one day, he was allowed to go and experience Eden once more. He could experience the filling, sustaining, life-giving presence of God. But the rest of humanity was left staring at the other side of the veil. And I believe this so fully describes our experience today. Maybe, just maybe, there's one person here whose relationship with God is perfect and their bank account is overflowing. Their kids say please and thank you. Um, they sing show tunes on their way to church. They're praised by their bosses at every single moment. They return home every evening to domestic bliss with their spouse. They live in Eden every single day. And if that's you, good for you. We're, we're really happy for you. For the rest of us, though, our lives can feel like they're being lived on the other side of that veil. Maybe, maybe I could say it like this. Does it, does it ever feel like rest is just out of reach from you? Does it ever feel like rest is just out of reach? Like, like it's on the other side of a curtain somewhere, like it's out there, but you can't quite touch it or feel it. Can, can I be vulnerable with you for a moment? I'm a... I'm a pastor. I know that God wants to give me rest and resilience. I know that he's been chasing after humanity throughout the entire scriptures, that he's moving heaven and earth to spend life with me. And it still feels like he's out of reach sometimes. It still feels like rest is on the other side of that veil. There's mornings when, when I have to force myself out of bed because I'm exhausted. And I don't have the energy to face my day. I always say to myself, okay, I'm going to get caught up tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll get caught up, but then tomorrow comes. And I, I just feel further behind. My daughter just, just took her first steps. And, and my greatest fear is that I'm going to miss these moments with her. Yet there's, there's days that I feel so overwhelmed that I'll just pick up my phone 
as an escape instead of focusing on her. Sometimes I reach for the resilience, the rest, the strength, the hope that God wants to give me, and it just feels like it's out of reach, like I'm on the other side of this veil, and, and I'm tired. And as I look around this room, I can see the same look in your eyes right now that you are too. I know that look because I see it in the mirror far too often. And it's also familiar because it's the same look that was draped across Dolores' face as she sat there in the hospital bed. Monitors slowly and steadily beeping behind our words. In that moment, I asked her, could I read her some encouragement from the Psalms? And she nodded her head and I turned, uh, I turned to my Bible and I pulled up my favorite Psalm, Psalm 22. I'm told that this was written by, by a man of God named David 3,000 years ago, and he was going through a similarly difficult time when he penned these words. And here's what David wrote. He said, in these words of encouragement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And you guys are like, that doesn't seem all that encouraging at all. It's totally okay, because Dolores didn't quite understand it either. But I leaned into the conversation with her, and I explained that these words are, are the first line of a song that David is writing. The Psalms are songs that were put to music and been sung by the people of God for nearly 3,000 years. In fact, most of the worship songs that we sing today at Liquid are inspired by Psalms David wrote. But here's the thing. They didn't originally have chapters and verses like 22, verse 1. Those were added much later. So when someone would choose a song, they would refer to it by the first line. What that means is that when you encounter a psalm, you have to keep singing and you have to keep reading. You can't stop at the first line or you'll miss out on so much. I think this is something we actually understand intuitively. I'll prove it to you. Watch, watch how this works. I'll, I'll sing something for you. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Okay, all of you get it. Maybe not as enthusiastically as I'd like, but you get it. There's something visceral that, that compels us to finish the song after we've heard the first line. We'll take another example for all my Sunday school kids out there. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it. Oh, so you can't help yourself now. If you don't complete it, it's just going to drive you crazy. You'll keep replaying it all day in your head. For all the parents out there, I actually have a newfound empathy for you because my daughter's a toddler. I, too, have every single Disney song running through my head at all times because of this exact principle right here. But let's do one more for all the real Christians in the world. In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground. Oh, shout out to the five 90s kids here. Everyone else, you're out of touch with it. Uh, see what I'm saying. We all know it. Nobody hears the first line of a song and just stops singing. You've got to keep singing the song because there's a story that's being told. And if we stop in verse one, we miss the rest of the story. So every time we encounter a song, let's keep reading and let's keep singing. Dolores nodded in agreement that she understood. And so I continued in Psalm 22. And here's what David writes. He starts off by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Rest is on the other side of that veil. All who see me, they mock me. Their whole insult, shaking their head. My mouth is dried up like a posture, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and 
they gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and they cast lots for my garments. And I only got about halfway through Psalm 22 before, before the tears started rolling down Dolores' face. We both felt in that moment. She knew it. I knew it. Rest was just out of reach. Hope was just out of reach. God was just out of reach, and it felt like she was on the other side of the curtain. This was her darkest moment. And in all accounts, it did seem hopeless. And that's when I took her, her two hands in mine. And I whispered to her a friendly reminder. Don't stop singing the song. Don't stop reading the psalm. Dolores, your song is not over yet. Keep singing because God is closer than you think. Liquid Church, I don't know what weight you carried into this room with you today, but if you're sitting here and and it just feels like the strength to continue is out of reach. If you're tired, if you're weary, I want you to hear this. You're not alone. Your God is so much closer than you think. For all of human history, he's been moving heaven and earth to be with you, to get to you, to give you rest, to give you resilience. So don't give up. Keep singing the song because it's not done yet. I spoke that truth over Dolores. And I asked her what she wanted to do. And she replied ever so softly. She said, keep singing. I was so proud of that answer. So we kept going in Psalm 22. And here's how David ends his song. He keeps singing and he says at the end, watch this. He says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you for you have not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. God has not hidden his face from me, but he has listened to my cry from hell. From God comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the future He rules over the nations. Future generations are going to be told about the Lord. They're going to proclaim his righteousness. I love this this part. He says, declaring to people yet unmourned that he has done it. What David is telling us, he's saying, don't give up. Don't give up too early. Don't stop singing the song. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't give up on your relationships. Don't give up on your child. Don't give up on your faith. Don't give up on on everything in life. Don't go back to self-medicating. Don't go stop wrestling with your doubt. Don't give in to your addiction. Don't give up. Keep singing the song because your story is not done. Your song is not done. Your God is not done. He is moving heaven and earth on your behalf and he's so much closer than you could possibly imagine. Are you with me? And I know this is true because Jesus came down to earth 2,000 years ago. If you're keeping track, that's 1,000 years after Solomon built the temple and 1,000 years after David penned those words in Psalm 22. God himself came down to earth because he has always wanted to be with us, to restore us and to give us the rest and glory of Eden. Not for one person once a year in the temple, but for all of us for all time. But if you know the story, humanity rejected Jesus and his offer of Eden, just like we always have. In fact, we called him a criminal and we sentenced him to death, death on a cross. 
And as he hung on the cross, the scriptures say that supporters abandoned him, that he was left alone, that the criminals and soldiers around him called out and mocked him. His mouth was so dry like a potsherd that he couldn't, he couldn't even breathe, so he called out for a drink, but was instead given vinegar. His enemy divided his clothes and cast lots for his garments. Does any of that sound familiar? And with his dying breath, Jesus mustered these words. And I think they're... I think they're words that you might know by now. Matthew recounts a story. He says, about three o'clock in the, G- in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And liquid, I hope by this point, you know, when you encounter the first line of the song, you got to keep singing it. And what appears like a statement of defeat by Jesus, what appears to be the end of the story is really just the beginning. As he gives up his his own life, he also gives up a song of praise to his father. While the cross is claiming Jesus' life with his song, he sings, Jesus is claiming his victory. He is shouting out that he has done it because immediately after he gives up his breath, watch what happens next in Matthew's account. Matthew says that he gives up his final breath. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. He gives up his spirit and at that very moment, I love this, at that very moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and the veil, the curtain that had been separating humanity from God for so long was split in two. God's presence was no longer contained to a temple or a tabernacle because of Jesus. We now have access to God. We can be restored to the Eden that we were created for. This is how the writer of Hebrews says it. Hebrews says that therefore, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, therefore, we now have the confidence to enter that most holy place, not once a year, not every once in a while for one person, for all of us, for all time. And we have that because of a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, Jesus' death. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to him because he wants to give us the resilience and give us the hope and the strength that we are looking for. Let us draw near to him with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who is promised is faithful. What it's saying is that because of Jesus and his sacrifice, God has placed his spirit within us. First Corinthians says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 said the spirit of God dwells in you. Galatians 4 says the spirit of Jesus is in your heart. The hope, the healing, the rest, the resilience you're looking for is inside of you because our God is now inside of you. Another way of saying it is resilience is no longer out there. It's in you because of him. Eden's no longer out there. It's in you. Humanity left the garden of Eden so our God moved heaven and earth to bring the garden back to us. And after I shared all these things with Dolores, I knew our time was coming to a close. So I asked her one final question. I said, Dolores, what song will your life sing? And just to be clear for everyone, it was a rhetorical question. But that's when this woman surprised me. With a look of determination in her eyes, She placed two hands on her side and she pushed herself up. As she did so, the wires across her arms and chest began to stretch. Then the beeps from the instruments tracking her vitals became to spike. And so she just mustered up what what little strength she had left in her. 
And she began from our hospital bed to sing these words, and maybe you know them. Maybe they're familiar to you. She sang out, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Liquid Church, what song will your life sing? When you feel forsaken and all alone, will you keep singing? When you feel like enemies are all around you, will you keep singing? When you feel like you're not enough, will you keep singing? When your bills come in each month, when your kids are misbehaving, will you keep singing? When the pregnancy test comes back negative again, will you keep singing? When you don't have the resilience on your own to keep going, will you keep singing? Because if that answer is yes, I want you to stand to your feet right now at home, at our campuses, wherever you're at in this room, right where you're at, I want you to stand up to your feet. And we want to take a second as a community of God, we want to take a second to, to remind ourselves of the reason why we're able to continue singing. We want to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made that's made it possible to reach beyond the veil and grab hold of the resilience in our lives. It's a time that we call communion. And if you're home, hopefully you grab some bread and juice. If you're at one of your locations, one of our locations, you received a small cup with a wafer uh, a cup of juice when you entered into this room. Just so you know, it is just juice out of respect for a recovery community. But these two pieces are, are, are so powerful. These are the powerful symbols that in just a moment, we're going to eat together. The wafer, the bread represents Jesus' body that he gave up on our behalf. And right before his death, right before it, he instructed his followers to take the bread and eat it together in remembrance of his sacrifice. So liquid church... Let's eat this bread together in celebration that he has done it. And then he took some juice. As he handed it to his followers, he said, drink this together. And, and when you do, I want you, I want you to remember that my blood was shed on the cross. And remember, it's, it's that blood that gives us access to God beyond the veil. Jesus' sacrifice made a way for us, a way for all of us. So let's celebrate that moment right now in this place. A couple weeks after Dolores left the hospital, I gathered with her family um, to celebrate her life. And as I spoke and gave the eulogy, I told the story of a woman who taught me what resilience looked like and shared our encounter together. I told them about Subway and tuna fish sandwiches. They laughed and they said, yeah, that's Dolores for sure. We talked about how difficult her time in the hospital was and we cried over the hopelessness of that moment. And then I got to share with them about her commitment to keep singing the song. When I shared that, they looked at me confused. They explained that Dolores hadn't stepped foot in church for 30 years. She'd been angry at God because she felt like he had abandoned her when she needed him most. It turns out, though, that God was so much closer than she ever realized he was moving heaven and earth to get back to her. And it also turns out that God wasn't done with her story yet. And I got to tell Dolores' family that I can't wait for the day when there's no more tears, when there's no more pain, when there's no more cancer, when I get to go right up to Dolores and give her a giant hug and tell her, thank you for teaching me what it looks like to sing. 
Liquid Church, I don't know what weight you're carrying in here today. I know, I don't know how hopeless or tired you may be, but I do know this. Don't give up. Your story's not done. Your song is not done because your God is not done. Keep singing. Through his sacrifice, you can find the resilience you're looking for. Let me pray for you right where you're at. Lord, thank you so much for moving heaven and earth in pursuit of us, even when we turn away from you, even when we run away from you. We thank you that you wrote into the Psalms encouragement to us to keep singing. We pray that we would have the resilience to keep singing, that we would lean into you. We thank you more than anything, though, that you removed the veil, that you made a way for us to grab hold of you so that you can restore us. You can give us hope. You can give us the resilience that we need. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group, outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.